So welcome everybody, Spiritual Psychotherapy Episode 4. Um, so we're going to be continuing uh, off from where we left off last class um, in terms of the Kabbalistic stuff. But before we do that, uh, I want to just discuss, of course, some of the more meditative things to put us in the right frame of mind. Um, so first of all, is uh, a meditation that I did last week. No. Um, and the meditation that I did is called Six Words of Advice. So these six words of advice that are so beautiful. Baruch haba, good to see you. How's everything? Wow. Wow. Wait, cool. Are you coming to us or are you going somewhere else? I'm going, I'm going tomorrow. No, wor no worries. Oh, enjoy that. But enjoy I'm that. I heard you speaking. No problem. Meditation. I'm like, ah. no, man. Oh, my God. Enjoy, man. That's awesome. So six words of advice was the name of the, the meditation uh, that, I, that I did last week. And it's, it's so simple, but it really put me in the right frame of mind. And it really helped me to kind of detach from every, all the other noise that was uh, in my head. And um, it really allowed me to, to really just be present. And I want to share with you guys to get our minds right before we dive into some of the material. Uh, so the six, six words of advice or six pieces of advice. Number one, don't recall. Don't recall anything about the past. Imagine this is the beginning of creation right now, right here. This is all that there really is. Everything leading up to this moment is really just an illusion, a memory happening in this moment. The other one is don't imagine. Don't try to imagine what this class is going to be like. Don't try to imagine what the rest of your life is going to be like, the important things, the not so important things. Don't imagine. Don't try to predict anything about the future. Number three, don't think. Just try to be present. Don't try to fully engage your intellectual capacity, but allow the words that I'm speaking to land on you in such a way as to open your heart, to open a different faculty of the mind. That's not only intellectual. Um, the next one, don't examine. Stop trying to cut into everything and analyze and understand on a different level. Stop overthinking and stop reading into things. And just see things and be with things as they are. That's very much a Zen concept. Uh, don't control Stop trying to control people, things, and outcomes. The more we try to control people, things, and outcomes in our lives, the more we become obsessed with the future and the less we become present in the moment. And last but not least is rest. Just fully rest in the perfection of this moment and the peace and the bliss that's inherent even within the neutrality of this simple moment. So those are the six pieces of advice. Don't recall, don't imagine, don't think, don't examine, don't control, and rest. So this is just really to orient us into this, this uh, moment of holiness and to really allow us to, to go forward in, in uh, getting our minds right for this type of material. Another set of things that really has helped me in the past is stoic techniques. Um, and I just like to share briefly what these are with you guys, because these are other techniques that allow me to really feel like I'm getting the most out of my life. Very often when we're going through life, it's, it's passing us by and we notice things that could be so beautiful and so emotional, but so often they escape us and we're not really able to savor the meaning of it. Like something as simple as playing with my niece on the swings or sitting down and having a meal with a loved one or a good friend. These are things that looking back someday are going to be so meaningful and beautiful. And if only you could appreciate that in this moment, you could really get the most out of life in a way. Not getting the most out of life in the sense of I am separate from life and I'm like a, a bank robber who's trying to raid life and suck it dry. No, not like that. But just to experience life in an open-hearted way. So these are three stoic techniques that allow us to do that. The first one is called negative visualization. It might be a little bit bleak, 
but it's really very useful and it really works. It's to picture something in your life that you really love and really appreciate and imagine for a moment that it wasn't there, a person or an object or an experience. Imagine that that thing was absent, totally absent from your life. And you could even picture the details of how it was taken away from you and the tragedy of that. So that's called negative visualization. And then all of a sudden, in one moment, you restore it. You bring it back. And the, the bliss and the peace and the happiness and the joy of bringing back this thing that you had lost, that's unbelievably meaningful. And that allows you to imbue this moment with a meaning that it would not otherwise have had. That's called negative visualization. And picture the, the joy that you have in returning it and realize, I can't believe I wasn't appreciating like this until I did this technique. Having this person in my life is so meaningful to me that if I didn't have them, I would be devastated. So how much more so should I appreciate them being here right now? Um, the next one is called the last time meditation. This is one I really, really love to do. It's a it holds a very special place in my heart where whatever I'm doing, I imagine it's the last time I'm ever doing it. So, for example, I could be giving a class and I could imagine this might be the very last time. Who knows? It could really very well be the very last time that I give a class. I don't know that it's not. It might be the last time. And I put myself in that frame of mind where if this is indeed the last time, how would I want it to be? Or I'm eating a piece of chocolate. Imagine this is the last time I ever get to eat a piece of chocolate. Of course, I'm going to enjoy that piece of chocolate like never before. Swimming in the ocean. Imagine the last time I ever get to swim in the ocean. I'm going to swim like I've never swam before. And the last one is called perspective retrospection. This is something we hinted at earlier, where... You imagine that this time right now is the good old days for you in the future. So you realize, wow, what I'm experiencing right now, I'm going to look back on someday. Hopefully, if I live till 70, 80, I'll look back. I'll say, you know, 27-year-old Michael, I remember going to Sephardic when I was single and I gave these classes and, and I, I met all these cool people and we spoke about so many cool ideas. And how fortunate was I to have that opportunity? And I hope it's not the last time in my life I get to do this. But it's called prospective retrospection. As though the older version of me can look back and appreciate this, it adds a certain poignancy to life. So I really just absolutely love those, those stoic techniques for appreciating life. And I think they can enhance all of our lives. So now we'll go a little bit into uh, some of the Zen stories that, I, that I've been enjoying reading about. Um, and I'd love to hear from you guys what you think. It's definitely more of a participatory thing at this point. I really want to hear from all of you. The first story. Tanzan and Aikido were once traveling together down a muddy road. A heavy rain was still falling. Coming around the bend, they met a lovely girl in a silk kimono and sash unable to cross the intersection. Come on, girl, said Tanzan at once, lifting her in his arms. He carried her over the mud. Aikido did not speak again until the, that night when they reached a lodging temple. Then he no longer could restrain himself. We monks don't go near females, he told Tanzan, especially not young and lovely ones. It is dangerous. Why did you do that? I left the girl there said Tanzan, are you still carrying her? That's how it ends. So to me, that's an incredible one. Yeah, maybe by the strict letter of the law for these monks, they weren't really allowed to carry a woman on their back. It was Asuriani. But, okay, the guy felt bad. He did it. He, he carried this woman on, on his back, and he crossed the thing. The other monk was so stuck on this, he couldn't comprehend how could somebody do something against the laws that we were taught. And he goes and, and uh, he, he confronts his friend and he tells them, what, what, what are you doing? And his friend Tanzan says, I put her down. It seems like you're still carrying her. And I always think about that. Whenever there's something in my life that I'm still you know, not at peace with that happened in the past, 
I could remember this story. I can remember, you know, why am I still carrying that? That's in the past. There really is only this moment. And, and anything, anything, anything. And it's, it's hard for me to say that because people have been through so much trauma. And you have to work through that trauma. But at a certain point, you could give yourself the permission to let go of it. Give yourself the permission to stop carrying it, like in this story. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Any questions or comments on that? Okay. I guess it's self-explanatory. No, I agree. <laughs> uh, next one. When the old master Hayakujo was asked, what is Zen? He said, when hungry, eat. When tired, sleep. But they said, well, isn't that what everybody does? Aren't you just like ordinary people? Oh, he said, no, they don't do anything of the kind. When they're hungry, they don't just eat. They think of all sorts of things. When they're tired, they don't just sleep, but dream all sorts of dreams. I think this is, for me, an unbelievable thing. There are times where when I'm done meditating, I go downstairs and I make myself something to eat and I, I just sit and I eat in silence. I just try to notice whatever I can notice. I notice the sounds that the fork makes against the plate. I notice the taste of every single part of the dish. And I notice the sounds around me. And it, it becomes a meditative experience. When hungry, eat. Don't get neurotic about it. Just eat. When tired, sleep. Don't get neurotic. Should I get this much sleep, that much sleep? Should I not? No, you're tired, you go to sleep. Simplify. You just be present with what you're doing. You're taking a shower. Don't go in the shower and think about your whole life and evaluate yesterday or tomorrow or whatever. Just take a shower. When you're brushing your teeth, just brush your teeth. It sounds so simple because it is. And it just takes practice. The more you train your mind to just be present with what you're doing, the more you could actually enjoy doing those things and, and not get lost in thinking about other things while doing those things. And it's just, I think the people you're around will notice this. You don't have to be absent-minded when you're with people. You could be, give them your full attention. And there's a holiness in that. There's a special connection that you form with people when you're giving them their, your, your full attention. Um, here's a little bit of a quote from Alan Watts. He says, now therefore Zazen or sitting Zen is a very, very good thing in the Western world. We've been running around far too much. It's all right. We've been active and our action has achieved a lot of good things. People always ask me, well, didn't it pave these roads? Yes, indeed it did. But as Aristotle pointed out long ago, and this is one of the good things about Aristotle. He said, the goal of action is contemplation. In other words, busy, 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 busy. But what's it all about? Especially when people are busy because they think they're going somewhere, that they're going to get something and attain something. There's quite a good deal of a point to action if you know you're not going anywhere. If you act like you dance or like you sing or play music, then you're really not going anywhere. You're just doing pure action. So this is, to me, unbelievable. He's trying to convert the way that we see our actions from always focused on a goal-oriented thing. And I find when people are meditating that this is almost always their difficulty. And people go on these meditation retreats. They become way too goal-oriented. And I've done this a million times. I'm trying to get somewhere. I, right now is not okay enough. And I'm looking for the next moment to find peace in the next moment. That's not where it's found. Lean back into this moment. Just find solace here and now. He says, but if you act with a thought in mind that as a result of action, you're eventually going to arrive at some place where everything will be all right, then you're, a squirrel, you're on a squirrel cage hopelessly condemned to what the Buddhists call samsara, the round or rat race of birth and death, because you think you're going to get somewhere. You're already there. There's nothing more significant that you could tell a person. Is then you're already valuable. 
here and now. There's nothing more you need to gain here and now to be valuable. In God's eyes, certainly not. That's all it is. That's life. As you're passing through it, you're going to have achievements and accomplishments. You're going to be doing things. But while you're doing those things, that's the practice, is to be able to notice and to be able to feel into the perfection of each moment as it goes along. And an enlightened person is somebody who is more and more capable of doing that with whatever they're doing, just being more. Here's the next part of what he says. And it's only a person who has discovered that he is already there who is capable of action. Because he doesn't act frantically with the thought that he's going to get somewhere. He acts like he can go into walking meditation at that point, you see? Where we walk, not because we are in a great, great hurry to get to a destination, but because the walking itself is great. The walking itself is the meditation. And when you watch Zen monks walk, it's very fascinating. They have a different kind of walk from everybody else in Japan. Most Japanese shuffle along. Or if they wear Western clothes, they race and hurry like we do. Zen monks have a peculiar swing when they walk. And you have that the feeling they walk rather the same way as a cat. There's something about it which isn't hesitant. They're going along all right. They're not sort of vaguing around, but they're walking just to walk. And that's walking meditation. But the point is that one cannot act creatively except on the basis of stillness, of having a mind that is from time to time capable of stopping thinking. So this is something that you know, almost always the question that arises when I tell people it's okay to chill, the question from our Western mindset always is, but don't I have free will and don't I need to improve myself and the world? And isn't there growth? All of those things can still be true. But don't you think that realizing the perfection of this moment and acting out of the perfection of this moment is going to lead to much more growth than acting out of anxiety and acting frantically out of a discomfort with this moment? To me, it just makes sense. And if anything, it just makes everything much more enjoyable and much more worthwhile. Because when you have that other mindset of everything being goal-oriented, you're never, ever going to get there because there's always going to be something else to do. So instead of running on this hamster wheel, just enjoy this moment. Um, so now he has a very interesting uh, portion, and this is right before we go, we'll go into some of the Kabbalistic stuff. And I think this will set us up because it has a lot to do with light. And we know within Kabbalah, there's a lot of imagery of the shattering of those vessels and the primordial creation and the gathering of the sparks and the kilipot and the husks of the shells, you know, of reality covering that light. So let's hear what Alan Watts talks about here. He says, so then it's terribly important to see beyond ecstasy. Ecstasy here is the soft and lovely flesh, huggable and kissable. And that's very good. But beyond ecstasy are bones, what we call hard facts, hard facts of everyday life. Incidentally, we shouldn't forget to mention the soft facts. There are many of them. But in the hard fact, what we mean, the world as seen in an ordinary everyday state of consciousness, to find out that that is really no different from the world of supreme ecstasy. There's something so brilliant in these words that he's saying. He's saying that in reality, this moment of ordinariness is actually no different than the moment of the, the greatest ecstasy, what he could call the, the beatific vision, the mystical experience. When you have the mystical experience, you realize every moment of ordinariness was actually just as spectacular as that moment of the mystical experience. So we've, we've spoken about uh, Interstellar, that movie, the amazing movie, when he's, uh, you know, he's, he notices uh, the lights 
uh, by the bookshelf are, are weird. And he's like, he sees one of the books fall down. And then later on in the movie, it becomes clear that really it was like a part of him that was fidgeting with that book later on in time. And somehow it, and that's really what it, what it feels like in the, in the mystical experience where you, you start to realize that every little seemingly insignificant moment actually was imbued with this tremendous amount of beauty and ecstasy to the same degree as when you actually were conscious of it and noticed it during the mystical experience. Um, to find out that that is really no different from the world of supreme ecstasy, well, it's rather like this. So let's suppose, as so often happens, you think of ecstasy as insight as seeing light. So there's a Zen poem which says as follows, a sudden crash of thunder, the mind doors burst open, and there sits the ordinary man. See, there's a sudden vision, Satori, breaking, wowee, and the doors of the mind are blown apart, and there sits the ordinary man, the ordinary old man, it's just little you, you know, lightning flashes, sparks shower in one blink of your eyes. You've, you've missed seeing. Why? Because here is the light, the light, the light, the light. Every mystic in the world has seen the light, as we say. That brilliant blazing energy brighter than a thousand suns. It's locked up in everything. Now imagine, imagine this. Imagine you're seeing it like you see Aurora Borealis around Buddhas, like you see the beatific vision at the end of Dante's Paradiso, vivid, vivid light, so bright that it is like the clear light of the void of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's beyond light. It's so bright. And you watch it receding from you. And on the edges, like a great star, it becomes a rim of red. And beyond that, a rim of orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. You see this great mandala appearing, this great sun. And beyond the violet, there's black. Black like obsidian. Not flat black, but transparent black, like liqueur. And again, blazing out of the black as the yang comes from the yin, more light going, going, going. And along with this light, there comes sound. There's a sound so tremendous with the white light that you can't hear it. So piercing that it seems to annihilate the ears. But then along with the colors, the sound goes down the scale in harmonic intervals, down, 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 until it gets to a deep thundering bass, which is so vibrant that in turn, it turns into something solid and you begin to get the similar spectrum of textures. So we'll just read the very end of this. Now, all this time you've been watching a kind of thing radiating out, but it says, you know, this isn't all I can do. And the rays start going, you wee, you wee, you wee, you wee. Like it starts just totally expanding outwards, dancing like this. And that's the, this is part of that mystical experience, experiencing the world almost dancing. And naturally the sound starts waving too as it comes out. And then the textures start varying themselves and they say, well, you've been looking at this thing I've been describing is uh, describing it so far in a flat dimension. Let's add a third dimension. It's going to come right at you now. See this way. And meanwhile, it says it's not just that we're not going to go you, you, you like this. We're going to do little curly cues. So it, it's continuing to dance and change this beatific vision that he's having. We're going to go lick at you. I don't know what he's saying here. And it says, well, that's just the beginning. We can go tum, 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 bum. So making squares and turns. I know it could get weird here, but this is part of that experience of everything being like a dancing symphony. And then suddenly you see in all the little details that become so intense that all kinds of little sub figures are contained within what you thought were originally the main figures. And the sound starts going all different. Amazing complexities of sound all over the place. And this thing's going, going, going. And you think you're going to get go out of your mind. And suddenly it turns into, why? Us sitting here right now. 
So the reason I read through all of that is because I wanted to show you that every single part of this seemingly very strange Baruch Abba Erwin, um, that every single part of this seemingly, hey Erwin, how you doing? <laughs> I just landed. Oh, wow. All right. I'm so honored that uh, this is the no, first. From, from, from Manhattan, not from Manhattan. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, wanted to, I, wanted, I wanted to get a little Jewish with you. I love it. Let's do it. We just finished all the, uh, the Zen stuff, so you're perfect timing. Um, okay. But, we, yeah, we, we had a couple of stories here if you want to glance at it. This is some, uh, some techniques we spoke about and some, some stories. Um, but, basically, we were just discussing this idea of the mystical experience and how it goes from this, this unbelievable vision of dancing and singing and lights flashing and moving to this very simple moment of little old us sitting here right now. And there's a paradox there. It's like, how could this moment seem like it's absolutely nothing special at all? Like it's totally, totally ordinary, totally mundane. And at the very same time, this moment, what the mystical experience tells you is in this ordinary moment, there is contained within it an unfathomable amount of complexity and music and dancing and lights shining and, and vibrating together. And, and uh, it's something to experience. It's not something that you could really explain, but it's something that is almost humorous. And, and they say at the very core of reality is humor. They talk about God as the joker. God almost like playing a trick on himself by hiding all of this beauty. Like we said last week, God is stretching out light like a, like, a, like a shirt. That's the same idea here. God is hiding all of this beauty from himself and then revealing it. And they say, once you become enlightened, the only thing that's left to do is laugh. Because you look back and you say, how in the heck <laughs> could I have missed this? How in the world could I have been so ignorant to, to say, oh, reality is just this. It's just ordinary and mundane. No, I, just, I just came out from the city from a conference. Yeah. So I was leaving. And then all of a sudden, because I was leaving, I said, I want to get back to Brooklyn. I, I was tired a long day. Then I said, you know what? I'm saying 10 more minutes. Don't ask me why. Interesting. And I say 10 minutes. As I'm going to the elevator, the guy that gets off the elevator is the guy that I went to. There was 300 people at the conference. The guy that I waited to see for an hour and a half wasn't there. I said, okay, he's probably not coming. The elevator open. I'm going to the elevator. The guy's coming out. Wow. I said, Hashem, what are you doing? To me? What are you doing? Wild. I, 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 I've been having crazy experiences this past week also where I've been having very deep conversations with people, very emotional experiences. And then all of a sudden, like something will happen that really feels like holy cow, this is exactly what I was just speaking about, or this is exactly what I was just talking about. There's nothing coincidental. Exactly. I, I think I, from this perspective, it's, it is nothing coincidental. It was everything that happens that led you up to this mm -hmm. mystical experience. Some people, when they're in their ego mindset, they'll say, oh, that's ego. It's too mm -hmm. self-referential. It's too much. No, but really the truth is, from this mystical mindset, you realize everything is just love all the way. Everything is right. just love permeating and everything. To, and you have to get out of that, like my like my rabbi told me years ago, they think it's the great me. Mm, exactly. <laughs> you have to get out of that mindset. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of making your ego into God, make God into your ego. There's a very big difference there. And, and well, what, what's the humor attraction? Ah, so now humor comes that's up. My, that's like my, my, my specialty. Like so so the, way I, the way I like to think about it is that let's say you have this unbelievable, expansive vision of the universe. And you start to see everything is connected. All the galaxies and everything. And, and 
beyond that even, you see all of reality as this infinite loop of just causing itself over and over again and fractals within fractals leading out and then, you know, all the way to the microscopic level. And then in the microscopic level, you see the macroscopic. And, and, you, and then you come back to the simplicity of this moment. And the, the humor in that is from this game of hide and seek that you've been playing, where you say to yourself, how could I not have noticed this? How could I have played such a trick on myself? So Alan Watts talks about a scenario where he says, you know, if you were God and you could have any dream you wanted a dream, you would probably say, okay, let's say there's this button that I could press. And, the, you know, anything that I want would come. Well, first night I would press in any G that I want, I get. And then you press it the next night and any you win every game you could possibly imagine. The next one, the best friends, the best food. And then finally you say, this is boring. And then you would want to invent a button called surprise. Where even you as God didn't know what was going to happen next. And then you press that button, and here we are right now. That's reality. And that's the joker as God. Right. That's each of us pretending that we're just little old me. And then you have this unbelievable vision, and you realize you really are the entirety of the universe. And then you come back to being little old me, and you laugh your, your head off because you say, how could this be? How could it be that I was deluding myself all this time into thinking I was just an ego where, where you see past that ego and, and not to put down the ego, because in order to be led up to the moment of transcending the ego, you needed to have things that your ego could feel connected with the world and feel loved. And, you know, having these taps on the shoulder, like we're talking about, where the, these very random things that you would never have expected to be connected, connect. And seeing a person walking out of an elevator, you never would have expected. Right. No, I think also, like, you brought out a great point with the ego. But I like to believe, I like to eliminate the ego, because that could always, like, that could lead to the great me. And eliminate the ego and just and, and switch gears to confidence. Exactly. It's like a little more humble that you feel you know good about yourself, not that you're a superpower. Absolutely, and and uh, a huge part of this is that the confidence comes when you remove the ego and you you start being filled up with a more divine energy of like it's not about me as being separate and having to act as a separate entity, but it's me as being connected in space and time to everything else. And I'm acting as an extension of the Big Bang even in this world that's dancing with itself. Um, so we'll, we'll leave the rest of this part for next time and we'll talk some more about Kabbalah. Um, so last time we were speaking, uh, we were talking about how some of the mitzvot, some of the commandments were given rational reasons by a lot of the philosophers like Kanambam and for a lot of people, this, this could take away from their experience of the mitzvot because it's like, all right, if I could just, you know, understand the reason that I could achieve that reason through other means, it doesn't have to be through these particular rituals. Um, the, the philosophers therefore viewed the mitzvot as a purification of humanity, what they called letzarif, to, to actually burn out some of the impurities. And they, that was one of their core tenets. And the mystics made a pun on this word litzaref to, to kind of burn out uh, the, like, like it says in Yeshayah, I'm going to burn out the alloys of tin and, and, and silver and just leave over the silver. So the, the mystics said, no, litzaref doesn't mean to purify. It really means to bind also. It doesn't only mean to purify. It means to bind the upper and lower worlds to bring all of reality to a state of unification with the divine. So this whole mystical experience that we were just discussing, the humor in seeing that I am simultaneously the entire universe and this limited, tiny, ordinary ego, it's this paradox that I'm holding in my hands at the same time. And the humor of that, the purpose of, of a mitzvah is to be able to see those two things at once, the upper and lower worlds, and hold them both in your hands. So as I'm giving tzedakah, 
I should have in mind, wow, I am the universe extending its hand out to another part of the universe to give and to receive. Or as I'm doing the mitzvah of uh, eating a family meal on Shabbat, I'm doing such a mundane thing. I'm just eating. I'm just an organism. And these calories are going to burn and give me energy. But at the same time, I'm doing something for the sake of Shabbat and I'm commemorating the creation of the entire universe and I'm celebrating it. And I'm realizing, wow, the combination of the whole universe is happening right now and me eating this delicious food. And it's like, is there anything more amazing? I'm eating stardust and yet it's going into me and it's nourishing me. Mike, what's um, Saref? What is that? So Saref has a dual meaning. So the, the mystics take it as the idea of to bind the upper and lower worlds, but it could also mean to purify. So not only does it mean on a, on a practical, rational level that, yeah, you're purifying your ego, you're purifying your midot, your characteristics. At the same time, say the mystics, don't overlook that you're binding the upper worlds of spirituality with the lower worlds of the mundane. And I think that's a very profound idea. And whatever we do, we could really try to put on that mindset. Earlier, we mentioned the Stoic techniques. Imagine when you're eating a Shabbat meal with your family and you're realizing the whole universe is culminating right now in me eating this piece of bread. But at the same time, this could be my last meal ever. Let me really enjoy this. Or prospective retrospection, let me realize the 80-year-old version of me is going to look back at now and say, holy cow, what a privilege it was to sit and eat a meal with my family. All right. Um, a man named Isaac the Blind, a famous mystic, he said, Harambam's explanations of the mitzvot were flimsy and completely inadequate. So with all due respect to Harambam, that was this mystic's opinion. This, his name was Isaac the Blind. Um, and the, uh, the reason he said this was, was probably because he felt that it didn't do enough justice to the, the elements of the mitzvot, which are beyond just the practical mundane level. Um, Moshe de Leon, uh, he says, they engage in the study of these philosophical works and their minds are so attracted by their teachings that they abandon the words of the Torah and discard them. They ridicule and mock the teachings of the rabbis and delight in the words of the Greeks and their servants, the medieval Jewish philosophers. So two things come to mind for me when I hear these words. Where number one, I think of Shalom HaMelech. There's three mitzvot to a king. What are the three mitzvot to a king? Number one, don't have too many wives because they might skew his heart, whatever that means. Probably the Avodah Zarah. Number two, uh, don't have too much gold and silver because he'll have become too haughty. Number three, don't have too many horses because you might return the nation to Egypt, right? And the, those are literally the three mitzvot in the Torah that it says you're not allowed to do as a king. Shalom HaMelech did all three of those things. He transgressed all three of those mitzvot. And you say to yourself, how could it be? The smartest man of all time. Hacham Ba'adam, if you know the Yehudim Ba'im version of it. It's very funny. The smartest man, why? And I think these people, these mystics would say it's because he thought I could rationally understand because the Torah gives reasons why you shouldn't do these three things because you might come to do this. He's like, oh, that's no, fine. I'll have a lot of women, but I won't do Avodah Zarah. Sure enough, he had a lot of women. He did Avodah Zarah. He's like, no, I'll have a lot of gold and silver, but I won't become haughty. Sure enough, he did and he became haughty. And he's like, right, well, I'll have a lot of horses, but I won't go to do business in Egypt. And sure enough, he returned the people to Egypt. And the point is, you know, not even just that, but it's like, Anybody could say this. So you, you talk to people in the 21st century and they'll say, well, we don't really need these, these mitzvot, these commandments, because we know the voice of the Torah. We know its tone. Love the stranger. They love the social justice warriors. Love to quote this. Yeah, just love people. That's what it's all about. Just love. And yeah, everything else will fall into place. And it's like, no, the mitzvot are much wiser than you. And they evolved and were developed and are God given for a reason. Because they're much smarter than you. So you think really that we don't need korbanot ever again? You think really that we don't need uh, X, Y, and Z mitzvot? Don't be so sure 
Don't be so quick to throw away these traditions because it's going to lead you in a direction that, trust me, you as a society do not want to go into. And that's what we're, we're reeling from today in society. We're dealing with anomie, what, what uh, Emil Durkheim would call anomie, which means a lack of meaning. Everything becomes meaningless in, in reality. And now society has lost its soul. Um, so to me, it makes sense to keep to, you know, more strictly to our tradition, obviously within reason and within the bounds of halacha and whatever progress can be made within the law system that we have, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that we should just throw away tradition because it has a lot of value to it that we don't really fully understand and mystical reasons to be uncovered throughout our lives. Um, so now the next topic we'll talk about is cultivating moral virtues and dispelling moral vices. But before we do any questions or comments, feel free. Okay, so without further ado, let's talk about this. You know, perfecting a person's moral character. So we said this is one element of the mitzvot. Many ethical values are not represented directly by any specific mitzvot in the Torah, any specific commandments. So what's the relationship between a commandment in the Torah and moral virtues that we're trying to cultivate? So Rabbi Chaim Vital, one of the most famous uh, mystical hachamim of the past, he says as follows. The virtues or midot are not included among the 613 commandments. Rather, they are the fundamental prerequisite for either fulfilling or rejecting the commandments. Committing the moral vices are much, much worse than committing sins. For example, disobeying the mitzvot. Meaning, it's more important to cultivate the underlying characteristics than to only keep the mitzvot. He's not saying to not do the mitzvot, but he is you know, saying, okay, yes, at the same time, the mitzvot do represent uh, a means towards fulfilling, sorry, uh, 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 that the, the, the moral virtues are a prerequisite for the mitzvot. And they're like the ABCs. They're like, you know, a non-starter. If you don't have that, you should, like what value do the mitzvot even have if you're not already a moral person? And for this reason, you can understand what our sages said uh, when they taught that one who gets angry is as if he actually worships idols, which exceeds being equal to or violating all the commandments. They also said that he who is arrogant denies God. Know this clearly and that these fundamentals are not counted among the 630 commandments connected to the rational soul. Therefore, this is why it is more important to be wary of the moral vices more than observance of the commandments. Because upon becoming a master of the moral virtues, one will be brought to observe the commandments. As our sages said with regard to the matter of the moral virtues, that humility brings one to the Holy Spirit and the Shekhinah rests upon him. So what he's saying basically is that these moral virtues, as a prerequisite, will naturally lead you to wanting to keeping these commandments. Because these commandments are an outgrowth of moral virtue. So that doesn't mean, God forbid, that we should ever throw away any of these things. But we should realize that it's supposed to be a natural consequence of already having mastered certain fundamentals. And uh, a lot of these, these fundamentals are, are to be taught by great sages and by being around the culture of Torah. Yeah. Um, yes, but this is great. Um, something that is... Uh sticking out for me is the book yes and i love all, everything how like this happened because in the beginning of the class you mentioned the heart mm. and how it's there's a separate there's a distinction between the mind and the heart the rational and the emotional yeah and uh in the book uh rabbi um says he's, ba- he's saying exactly that um and he highlights key things. So you said it's not part of the 613 mitzvot. In a way, it transcends them. It's even exactly. a, a next level. And his proof, which I, I really, mm-hmm. really appreciated when I, when I realized this, is that we say Shema. Shema is a foundational thing that we say. We say it twice a day, once before we go to bed, maybe three times a day total. Mm. So we say Shema, I say, El acknowledge the Oma Kuchamaim. And then what's the first word we say? Yeah. Atna. What what is the point? The Ahavta. Wow. And then what does it say? Et Hashem Elohecha. 
Bechol lebabecha. Wow. It doesn't talk about your nefesh, and it doesn't talk about your mm. daily, you know, maybe money or whatever it is. That's after. That's after. Mm. The first thing is ve'ahavta oh. Amazing. And, and that's basically what you're saying. Amazing. That's exactly it. And we so I've, I almost found myself contradicting myself earlier, where I was saying, you know, of course, you should do the mitzvot for their own sake and for these mystical reasons. But at the same time, they have this tremendous significance that that is uh, for the sake of perfecting our our deeds and our our uh, moral virtues. But what you're saying, I think, kind of marries it to where it's the the ahava, and is the is the beginning. The love of God is the is the first part of this, and as an outspringing of the of that love, are these commandments and are these moral virtues, and it all starts with that. And from that primordial love of God, which is what I could feel towards God, what God can, you know, imbue into me and into his creation, springing forth from that are the mitzvot and are these moral virtues. And that, that makes all the sense in the world, but I think it's something to feel into as you're engaged in a religious lifestyle. That's really a beautiful, beautiful point. Thank you. They really enhanced my understanding of this. Hazag um, So the next, the next part of this is equanimity and humility. This is one of my favorite uh, parts of the book that I'm reading on Kabbalah. So tune in right now. So in addition to dispelling arrogance, pride, and self-centeredness, one must also be careful to control one's anger. Devakut is achieved. Through through imitating God in your actions. And a lot of the mitzvot are aimed at imitating God. So, so the question is, all right, how do I imitate God? And, how do, and part of that is how do I eliminate pride and eliminate self-centeredness to open myself to God? And by doing so, I can emulate God not out of a need to impress and not out of uh, a phony humility where, oh, look how you humble I am, which is really ego. But just in a genuine, here I am with you, Hashem. How do I do that? Cultivation of moral virtues is a prerequisite to divikut. So it's saying, in order to achieve that, you have to simplify. You have to let the ego pass. It's almost like meditation. If you meditate, like the, the Hasidim Arishim, they used to meditate for an hour before prayer, an hour after prayer. That's because they were eliminating their ego. They were saying, Hashem, before I speak to you, it's like I, a cleansing. It's basically a cleansing of the mind. It's like, how could I ever approach the Almighty if I'm stuck in my worldly thoughts? If I just got out of a business deal or a thing, da, 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 I can't step up before God. I need to sit for an hour before and an hour after. In order to even think of approaching God. That's Hidbodidud, like, no? Exactly. That's where the whole concept of Hidbodidud comes from, of, of being that's alone right. with God in the forest or wherever. Right. No, in the forest, that's uh, that, that's Breslov, Rabbi Nachman. Exactly. And it's such an intimate, beautiful no, way. It's a mind blowing yeah. closing. Yeah. 100%. It, no, it, it, it I, I know. I, I read a lot of books on, on, on it. Advice I love it. One day we're gonna do a we'll, we'll do a trip together. We'll all uh, go out to the forest and uh, yeah, we and gotta do that. It. You gotta scream once you get out there. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> the desert and the negative. We've done that. That's where it originated. I'm sure. Um, so so this whole idea of divakut of of being close to God has to come naturally out of dropping the ego. Because if you say to yourself, look how I'm going to now cling to God, that's totally ego. It has to be a natural consequence of elimination of pride that falls away on its own. You can't be the one to eliminate pride. It has to just simply pass on. You let those prideful thoughts come and go, and then what's left with that, you relate to God. Uh, so pride is incompatible with love or, or worship of God. And they say one who is so filled up with himself leaves no room for God. We said last week, empty your cup. There's the idea of equanimity now that comes into play, which is so beautiful. 
So first of all, what's equanimity? It has its roots in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. The Stoics and the Sufis also were big fans of this. It's defined as follows, quote, an attitude of absolute impartiality, either to the admiration or disdain of others. The individual is said to have reached so high a spiritual level that the manner in which he is treated by others has no impact upon him. He treats both praise and scorn equally, that is, with equanimity. In Hasidut, a verse in Psalms was interpreted as reflecting the requirement to cultivate equanimity. This was a verse also used to denote the mystic's awareness of the imminent presence of God. And that pasuk is so beautiful, we say it every morning. Shiviti Adonai tamid kimi emot. I have placed God before me always. Or really, Shiviti means I have almost have God as like this equated God in front of me. And the, the word hishtavut in Hebrew means equanimity. It means this ability. And, and literally, this is exactly what the Zen teachings and the Buddhist teachings are talking about as well. Remember that last week's story. We had that story that there was this guru who was accused of fathering a child. And they went and they threw the baby at the ground. They said, here, you take care of him. We don't want this, this bastard. And he takes the baby and he says, oh, that's so okay. And then after six months or however long, the girl felt bad. She said, I was lying. And really, this guru is not the father. It's like Maury Povich, not the father. And they go to his house and they say, dude, why didn't you tell us? And they, they said, actually, it's not your kid. He goes, oh, is that so? And he gives the kid back. That's equanimity. He put his ego, it's non-existent. It's so far away from him that he's like, it doesn't even matter to him if people are accusing him of something or if people are you know, feeling bad that they accused him falsely. Neither of those actually affect him. So part of my job as a psychiatrist is to try to dwell in equanimity. Whatever the patient is saying towards me, even if it triggers me on some level, or if I appreciate the, play, the praise that they're giving me, I, I have to dwell in equanimity. I can't allow my counter-transference, as it's called, to affect my treatment of that patient. I have to totally dwell, at least on one level, in total peace and total equanimity. And it doesn't affect me. And therefore, I could be so present with them that I make the best decision I can for their treatment. What's the amount of control you have? Say it again? It's an awesome amount of control that you have to have. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, it comes from giving up control in a lot of ways. It comes from wow. taking a deep breath and saying, you know, God, please give me the strength to just let it all go. It's all about letting go and just resting in the perfection of this moment. And no matter what the person is telling you, or whether it's a sob story from a depressed person or an unbelievable grandiose delusion from a manic patient, you can just dwell in equanimity with that person. Right. Um, how does, that, how does the, 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 the slogan, the, uh, I want to say slogan, but when you say anger, how does it end up applying the, the way Hashem is so nice to us? How hmm. do we use that model to be nice to people at all? Not to flip out. I love that. I think exactly what we're talking about it plays into because, as we said, anger really removes you from God. So the re the realization is, if I don't allow my anger to overtake me, and I just notice my anger and bring love to my anger. So the one of these uh, gurus that I love, name is Ramdas, Jewish guy named Richard Alpert. He says, "I love my dark thoughts," and if you give any thought that love or that room to just be and then pass on like anything else instead of resisting it you become a person of peace you become a person who's dwelling in equanimity you say oh anger i love you anger thank you for trying to protect me thank you for setting a boundary but it's okay you know i got it from here anger it's okay and you take a deep breath and you say Okay, the anger is coming and the anger has gone. That's it, you know, and that's Erech Apayim, I think. That's, that's in a way, uh, emulating God's quality of, you know, God allowing us to be so perfectly imperfect in every moment and still giving us a chance to continue going despite our imperfections. And if anything, he loves us because of our imperfections, 
and because of our capacity for growth. Right. So, so that's, that's the way that I relate to, to Erech Apayim, but that's a fantastic question. I, I, I think that really hits the nail on the head though, in terms of this discussion. Um, so the, the Buddhists and the, the, the Zen guys will talk about craving and aversion or clinging and aversion. And they'll say that this idea of clinging is when I have a, a something in my environment that I, that I want to hold on to. And aversion is something in my environment. Um, and I'll mute you for a second. I didn't target this feedback, but feel free to unmute. Um, that clinging is when there's something I really want to grab onto and hold onto for longer than it might necessarily stay. And I get sad when it leaves. And then there's aversion, which is something I don't even want to come into consciousness right now. And I push it out and I don't allow myself to experience it. But dwelling in equanimity is the constant realization, whatever it is, it will pass. And that's hishtavut, that's equanimity. And even the, the resistance of it will pass. And that's okay. Accept your judgmentalism. Accept your shame. Accept your anger. Accept the difficult emotions. Accept the fact that you can't accept it. And even that will pass. And there's, there's it's just a constant letting go. Um, so I wrote here, accepting all things as being from God um, and, and realizing whatever is happening, this is something that's eventually going to lead me back towards the oneness. It's going to lead me back towards uh, the, that experience of being close to God. Um, and by the way, this is what they, know, they call the pinnacle of self-disregard or paradoxically self-regard because it's capital S self-regard. When I stop worrying and, and clinging to whatever's happening and pushing away other things, I can be totally with what is right now. And that's in a way where God is found, whatever is right now. And I stop dwelling in this illusion of past and future. Um, so the, they, they talk about negating all needs and desires, except paradoxically for the need and desire for communion with God. It's a natural consequence. A natural consequence of getting rid of all your desires is this one desire that's left, which is just to be one with everything. And, and eventually that desire will be met and it will be fulfilled, but not through forcing it, by just riding that wave, by surfing on it in a way to allow it to come of itself instead of forcing it to, to come right now. Um, for some mystics, equanimity is a prerequisite to divakut. For others, divakut is a result of equanimity. So it depends how you look at it. But in, in one way, shape, or form, if you are, in, are equanimous, if you're a person who is totally okay with right now, no matter what's coming, that is clinging to God. That is a total awareness of, of just how it all is right now. And that's divakut. Um, Another quote from Isaac the Blind, and anyone who has a comment, of course, or a question, feel free to, to jump in here. Equanimity, he says, is the key to prophecy. So hear me out. Whoever attains the secret of Debekut will reach the secret of, secret of equanimity. And if he will reach the secret of, secret of equanimity, he will reach the secret of concentration. So it goes Debekut to equanimity. Equanimity to concentration. And since he has, and this is what you were talking about, ID. And since he has reached the secret of concentration, he will reach the divine spirit, and from it he will attain prophecy and will foretell the future. And the reason for equanimity is the cleaving of the thought to God, since cleaving and concentration of thought with God causes that a person not be sensitive either to the honor or the contempt that people demonstrate toward him. Right, so he's saying, okay, so first of all, what's equanimity? It's the ability to totally disregard anything that's happening on the outside with regards to you. Once you perfect that as a result of divakut, which is, you know, just being totally mindful of this moment. That's the way I really think about it. So mindfulness will lead you to equanimity. And then the equanimity will lead you to total concentration and hit bodhidut in this moment. 
And when you're so fully concentrated on this moment, you pop out. You suddenly transcend space and time. You reach the divine spirit and somehow, some way, you see time for what it truly is. You see it for the illusion that it truly is. And I can't testify for what it means to be able to, to understand the future or probably the past as well from this moment. But once you realize the fundamental connectedness of this moment to all moments of the past and all moments of the future, and that's how they could talk about the messianic times or people who have had mystical experiences can understand that this is only a natural consequence of being so fully present in this moment which is where it really is all found and that where this is really all that actually is any questions or comments on that i think this is so awesome from isaac the blind you know talking about the stages of how it works it's so simple be mindful with your divakut. That's really what divakut is. It's just total mindfulness. And then once you're mindful, you're going to be equanimous. And once you're equanimous, you're fully concentrated and you're in touch with time. Rabbi Chaim Vital, um, wait, I don't know how many more minutes we have. We'll try to do this quickly. Chaim Vital, he talks about equanimity and drawing down the divine influx. He says humility and equanimity are intertwined that a fundamental part of equanimity is humility. Beware of un all unworthy traits, for they contaminate the foundation of the soul, specifically any and all types of pride. One should become like a doormat that everyone can step upon. I'll take that with a grain of salt. He doesn't literally mean that. He doesn't literally mean that, I don't think. But yes, he means this in the sense of equanimity, where it doesn't matter to you what people say about you. Yeah, I think doormat hits differently in our day and age because people use that in the wrong way. Seal humility in your heart completely until you no longer feel joy from being honored nor shame from being abused. Don't stake your joy and happiness or your sadness on external things that happen. They should both be equal in your eyes. Do not become angry even if someone strikes you on the face for nothing hinders the descent of the Holy Spirit on you more than anger. Do not ever be impatient even with members of your own family and do not ever be depressed. For prophecy does not come upon a person, even if he is worthy, if he is depressed. For in this way, you shall draw down the divine influx to all the worlds. The principal thing of all is to have a ceaseless awe of God. And as I said in parentheses, you're similar to Heschel's radical amazement, where in every single given moment, we should be amazed at just the very fact of existence itself. Why should there be something rather than nothing? This can be done by placing God's name before you as it is written, Shaviti Tamid, I have placed God before me always. Intend your thoughts to cleave to God unceasingly. This is the secret of Ubotid Bakun and Uldovkabo. And cleave to him, to him shall you cleave. What this means is basically the same as what we were saying, not to actually put yourself in a situation to be a doormat, but rather that when things do happen to you on the inside, be like a doormat. Say like, okay, this person stepped over me and then now they're going to pass away, pass off. That doesn't mean you can't set healthy boundaries. That doesn't mean you have to be. But while you're setting those boundaries, you can maybe even pretend to be angry. But you don't have to allow that to destroy your inner peace. So they say, make your inner world be like bamboo, where it's flimsy. And when the wind comes, it doesn't snap in half, but it bends with the wind. And then it comes back to its place. So that's the way our inner world could be. Our inner peace doesn't have to. It could be in a way like, okay, it just comes and it goes. All phenomena. And the equanimity from that will eventually lead you towards the perfection of your character traits. Because you're going to become less obsessed with, did he say this about me? Or should I say this back to him? And you're playing these ego games and fighting these, these uh, petty little uh, competitions. And that's no longer necessary when you're in this mindset. ID, I'm sorry that I muted you, uh, but I, want, I would love to hear from you if you have any comments. And, and of course, you, Mickey and Victor as well. No, I, I didn't see any like, background in my Zoom room. I apologize. Ah, don't worry about it, of course. Not a problem. No, yeah. I, 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 you, you brought it all in as usual. Brought it all home, and it's really—I mean, it's a lot of food for thought. 
and, and it's a lot of, like I said, for me personally, it's always the challenge of, you know, the improvement and, and trying to get where we have to get to, but it's a lot to juggle. Yeah. The irony is from, from what we were talking about in the beginning is you're already there. And really, even though all this stuff seems like a mountain to climb, on the one hand it is, and there are things to work on always, but on the main thing is it happens in this moment and just simplifying and realizing I'm already perfect in one sense. God is already right here, right now with me. And there's nothing more I need to do in order to earn that. So that's my blessing to you, is that you should be able to hold those two parts of the paradox at any given moment where you can enjoy the ride of the growth and the storyline that your life is. But at the same time, you could take moments of stillness, moments of breathing in and breathing out and equanimity, and feeling fully present with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who is already loving and nurturing you right now, because you are just simply a light of God right now. You're a manifestation of the divine in a sense. So that's my berachat to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any more questions? Okay. Thank you, guys. Really, thank you for 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 being so participatory, and I, I enjoyed so much. I I learned so much from you guys. Really, Have a great week, and I'm happy I jumped on. I'll see you later. Alamak. Bye.